beautiful Hollywood. Beautiful. Welcome to the show that explores the stories of those with a dream and how they make it happen. This is Beautiful Hollywood, where we go deeper below the shiny surface of celebrity and success and look at that Hollywood state of mind that drives the dream. Hello, I'm Melanie Camp. Big thanks to our beautiful Hollywood travel partner, Wondersafe. When we're on the road, we use the Wondersafe app. You can check it out in the app store. Today on the show, we are here at the Teen Project in Sun Valley to chat with the amazing woman who is at the helm of this organisation that saves at-risk, homeless and sex trafficked young women here in Los Angeles. Laurie Burns is the Teen Project's Executive Director. Uh, she herself was once living on the streets, forced into prostitution. She has an incredible story. Because of her, Teen Project is a place where for many, hope begins. And today we're going to talk healing, hope, moving on from being a survivor to a thriver, Laurie Burns. Thank you. Wow. Thanks for having <laughs> me on the show. I love the intro. Wonderful. It's kind of hard to sum you up in a like, this is Laurie yeah. Burns. She's fab. <laughs> Boom. Because you have had such an incredible life. Yes. Such a story. And then you have gone on to do amazing things and have helped so many people so far. Thank you. Yeah. Someone said to me the other day, I'm like, I'm so happy with where I am right now. I'm not suicidal, but if I was to die, I'm just like happy with my footprint. And his response was, I don't think you're done yet. And I'm like, oh crap. Because <laughs> it keeps on going. It's kind of like a Rubik's cube. There's all these different pieces. Do you ever, I mean, I imagine you probably do sit and just think, wow, this is where I am from where I came from. I, I have glimpses of it. I really don't allow myself to fully take it in because I realize that, um, how do I say this in a way that people can absorb it, that I show up and drink a lot of es espresso and I don't say no a lot. So I say a lot of yeses and I'm very hyped up and it turns out really good. But I also think that that's a result of karma. That's a result of well, karma, right? So I'm doing the right things. In the past, when I used to do the wrong things, a lot of bad things used to happen. I used to think it was because I was born on Friday the 13th, but now I actually re realize it's a result of my actions and my intention in this world that brings things back. So I leave a lot of the credit up to the people that are around me that are helping me and um, higher power of sorts. So who was Laurie Burns? Laurie Burns was a kid who grew up in a very tragically abusive home with sexual abuse, physical abuse, and um, I have been cursed with a really good memory like an elephant. And I'm very analytic. So while everyone in my family, where I have an older sister, younger sister, and the regular mom and dad as a child, were kind of just shoving it all under the carpet in a state of denial, I was unable to reconcile what was going on. And it showed up in behavior problems. Um, you know, anything I could to get control outside of the house was reasonable, whether it's stealing, hitchhiking, you know, doing drugs, whatever. And... When I was, uh, I grew up in a Jewish home. So when I was about 13, after my bat mitzvah, someone discovered the abuse. A kid was in the house and my dad didn't know it. And that spiraled everything out of control. Uh, my dad ended up taking his handgun, which he had with him at all times. He was very paranoid. He put it somewhere hidden and told the police I had it. My parents had been taking me to all kinds of psychiatrists and psychologists. So I, at this point, was... Um, if you could imagine, I was, you know, I was a good student. I was like a mathematician when it came to math. I took viola lessons, singing lessons, and I was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and I was taking meds for schizophrenia. I was suicidal, so I had, I always had these two different sides of me that were fighting against each other. And when they looked at my schizophrenia diagnosis, my meds, and the fact that the gun was gone, I was sentenced to a ward for the criminally insane at the age of 13, and then I finally got out, exited to a group home, and then... The rest of my teenage years are just group homes in juvenile hall, mostly juvenile hall. And I started shooting up drugs intravenously by the time I was 16, exited foster care at 18. And at the time, I thought it was my own bad luck that I was homeless after foster care. I started the charity when I realized it's the actual plan for foster kids. They are going to go homeless on their 18th birthday. Uh, if you Google the statistics of kids leaving foster care, it's been that way since the 80s drove me freaking nuts. So it's still driving me nuts. Um, I want to say that when, it, when I was on the streets, working the streets as a prostitute, which started around the age of 18 when I was homeless, 
I was on the streets for several years. I got pregnant. My daughter went into the system. Again, I hit every bad statistic on drugs, homeless, sex trafficked, single parenting, on welfare. I mean, just everything. My daughter went into the system and I stayed on the streets for about five years until one day on the streets, I was kidnapped by gang members who had a call to action to find a prostitute, rape her all night and kill her. And after a long, horrific night in the woods, have you seen the movie Monster? Yeah. I can't even watch it. It's so close to my life. It, the, the, I watched it once and I couldn't speak for about three weeks. I had the choice of killing them or letting them kill me in that car. And I screamed that they would kill me and at the top of my lungs, thinking they would just end the job. I've been trying to end my job, you know, my life for quite a while. And instead of killing me, someone must have heard something out in the woods and a man I call my angel rescued me. And I got a couple of things I so desperately needed. I was 23, almost 24 years old, and I was able to get um, a scholarship for drug treatment and at a women's center. And I was able to get a grant for technical schooling that was six months through the Job Training Partnership Act, which is now like workforce investment and a lot of therapy. So through those few things, uh, my life was refueled. I got my daughter back out of foster care. I eventually became a director at Northrop Grumman Corporation, running the IT department in El Segundo. And um, I need to say that like a couple of years after I got off the streets, well, I started a meeting at my house almost immediately when I got my daughter back and I got out of rehab for women and children because I wanted to give back what pe people had so graciously given to me. And almost immediately, one of the ladies that attended my meeting left her kid with me, which was fine. I had no problem keeping a kid, oh, right? Wow. Yeah. That's my forte. <laughs> but uh, she ended up passing away. And uh. that was the first of the 36 kids I've taken in. And I eventually became a foster mom when mm. I first applied to be a foster mom they were like what are you crazy look at your record prostitution all over the place I guess I had been arrested more times than I knew I thought I was arrested once or twice but they showed me mugshots that proved otherwise and you have no memory of those mugshots? <laughs> no oh. um and then you know assault and batteries and all kinds of crazy things but eventually I got, I got approved to be a foster mom wow mm -hmm. and is that because of where you had ended up and you were in the right place to be a foster mom or is it because they need fosters <laughs> okay that's an interesting question um so I was not in the right place when I applied um they told me you need to literally anyone that's getting clean and sober and has a history of drug abuse or alcoholism needs to get seven years clean and sober before they can even apply for a waiver but what happened was they told me to come back in seven years to be reevaluated, and literally seven years later I had another kid um, with me and I had to go back through the process. And at that time they said, Lori, nobody comes back when we say seven years. And I was like, I didn't remember them saying seven years. I'm not counting it. When someone says come back in seven years, it's the kind of thing you're just like, you know what? F you too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, might as well be 10. Yeah. It's like <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember that, but I guess my little sister always says, is it odd or is it God? And um, we're not we're not religious people, but we're definitely thinking something else goes on around here. And so they make me a foster mom. And that wow. was the beginning of the start. I still have foster kids in my house today. It's been like, well, I was um, 23 when I got sober and I just celebrated. Well, I'm about to celebrate in Jan January, God willing, 32 years of sobriety. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. How is it? I mean, people talk about that. I've been sober for nine years, 12, you know, 32 years. Is it? a constant battle or is it something you don't necessarily think about or how is it to be sober for that long? I don't necessarily think about it, but all right, let's put it this way. Every day I wake up grateful. Every day I wake up, I look out the window. I, I mean, everything makes me grateful. It's very weird because um, people always say make a gratitude list. I don't have to do that. I'm grateful for my sheets. I'm grateful for it. I, you know, I've lived in so many homes, 18 homes, between the age of 15 and 18 and the 23 homes between 18 and 23 years old. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm grateful for everything. I'm grateful for the water in the shower. I'm grateful for my closet. I'm grateful for my cat. I mean, it's just like, ah, it's constantly hitting me all day long. So in that way, it's not a problem. But um, it does affect me. Like sometimes if there's a bunch of people drinking around me, it might cross my mind for a minute. 
Um, I'm not around people that do drugs, thank God. But um, if people are drinking, it might hit me for a minute, what it feels like to have warm alcohol going down your throat and when it hits your belly. And then I immediately go to, and you'll be selling your butt out on the street by tomorrow. So (laughs) let's not do that. So yeah, that's about how hard it is for me. Wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's that's interesting. I mean, you talk about how grateful you are. And before you were saying that you feel that you draw a lot of good karma because you do good things. Mm -hmm. When was the turning point? Was there a definite turning point or do you see it was a period of years that you went from being an abused child and being mm-hmm. in the foster system and then being on the streets and being an addict and then coming to that point where you were didn't want to die anymore and you were grateful? Right. Yeah. So when I got sober, my daughter was in the system for a year and during that year it was very hard and the day I was to take her back, I almost committed suicide. Uh, luckily someone intervened. But I was suicidal for um, at least the first year I would go through thoughts of suicide. And then uh, I just had really bad uh, thinking patterns and behavior. I rode a motorcycle. I still ride a motorcycle, but I rode it differently then. I rode it more like a video game. Like life ends, it ends. Like you put a quarter in, there's not going to be another quarter, but I'm riding like there is, you know. Uh, I had a therapist that was very very forward. And, um, she was like my other Jewish mama. She was a Jewish lady from New York that didn't put up with any crap. And when she started with me, she actually, for the first year, she was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. She actually, I wrote about it in my book. She left the room one day and gave me a pen and told me to write with my other hand that I don't ordinarily write with and talk to my inner child. And I really thought like, Am I Sybil or what's going on here? You know, you remember Sybil? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the heck? There is no inner child. I couldn't get in contact with my feelings about anything that had happened for probably the first four years of sobriety. Wow. I, I just didn't register. I talk about it like it was it was someone else's life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it took it took years to get through it and then to forgive my father, who was my abuser. I forgave my father to give you the cliff notes of it, when he tried to kill himself, when he saw about all the foster children I was helping, he tried to take his own life and they called me from the hospital. Now, the reason they called me is because through my own therapy with this lady, uh, Sandy is her name, I realized maybe my dad was an abused kid. So somewhere in therapy, I started realizing maybe my dad never had love. Maybe that's why he's so angry. Maybe nobody ever showed him what love is like you people have done for me. So I heard what Gandhi said about be the change you want to see in the world. And I decided to be the change I wanted to see for my dad because he's the worst guy I know. So I'm going to start with the hardest one. And I started writing letters to him, telling him good things about himself. Now, understand, for years before, I'd been writing some really nasty letters to him about stuff he's done. So all of a sudden, the letters changed to um, you're an engineer and I do computer engineering. And this is a trait, you know, we share and trying to focus on positive. And then when he tried to kill himself... I think the only person that he thought might be um, accepting a phone call was me. And it was because of the letters. So you had written bad letters to him first and sent them to him? Yes, And then you started sending the good ones? Yeah. Okay. Uh Okay. Oh, wow. Not really wanting a response, but... Yeah, it was more a cathartic process. Do you think it's important to sort of let out all the hate first before you start? Oh, yeah. You can't fake it. Yeah. Yeah. People try and recover too. I hear kids that I help now, like who have just been abused saying I could forgive my dad. And it's like, no, you can't. You have to get to the anger first. Because remember, I was numb for four years. Yeah. And then I started feeling the anger. And then the anger was like the exorcist. Like, oh, my God, she's angry. And then (laughs) um, then I started to get more logical about it. Like, wait a minute. Why is he like that? And I also got that way from seeing the parents of the kids that I'm taking in. Because now I'm like straddling both lives. I'm taking in the abused kids and I'm seeing their addict parents and I'm both. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So I had a lot of compassion for the parents. Wow. Yeah. That's, I've, yeah, that's in, yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. And did that come and, and I suppose, did that help you with having compassion for your dad? Or oh yeah. Because, Cause yeah. then you look at your dad and he's like, he's one of those parents. Something happened to him. Do you know, does he ever talk about what happened to well, him? Well, yeah, he did. And that was another, you know, part of the healing. He, was his mom was a young woman who was single and kept him for 
a little while, I think t- till he was about four, and then dropped him off at a Jewish orphanage in the city of New York and said she would be back after work. And he sat at oh. the window for three weeks. They, he was defecating on himself. He would not leave the window, and she never returned. Mm. Yeah. So he was adopted to a Yiddish family. And the funny thing is, I was, my grandmother, his mom, was so loving. And she would cook so much food for us and eat, eat. And I always thought, God, how is he so angry with such a loving mom? It wasn't until all this came out that I found out she was a foster mom. And when I found out she was his foster mom, I had already fostered 17 kids. So it was like, oh, my God, now I love her even more. Wow. Yeah. Were you mm. able to talk with her as your grandmother as a foster mom? She was already long gone, I wish. Mm. But I still feel like when I talk to her now, she hears me. Yeah, I yeah. think her spirit must mm-hmm. live yeah. on through this work for sure. Mm-hmm. Goodness me. And so he just was never, he was, ne- I guess, never, even all the love that she gave him, it wasn't enough to. Yeah, for kids like us, uh, we push away people that love us because we don't believe them anyway. Right. And maybe. We're constantly like, what do they want from us? Yeah. I see, and it's that, oh, you think you love me? How are you love me now? Yeah. How you love yeah. me now? Yeah. Oh, I knew you'd never love me. Yeah. Wow, that's just so heartbreaking. And do you think that's why your parents, because your parents divorced, didn't yeah. they? Is it because he was, did oh, even have love for him? That's his a wife, whole or? other book, lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My mom overshares. So it's like, oh God, I wish he didn't tell me that. Oh, but yeah, let's just say it was real bad between them too. <laughs> wow. Well, I suppose. I mean, he was doing things like when your friend found you, he was yeah. hitting you with a hairdryer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, so awful how abusers go on to abuse or they evolve and heal and then go and do amazing things for people. So I I suppose I know that you say in your book that you wouldn't, you're, would you say you're not grateful, but if you didn't have the life that you had, you wouldn't be doing what you did today. Right. Oh, no, I'm so grateful for my life. Like every part of it. You really get that in the book. You'll get it in the movie. It's like I had to walk this path to get to where I am now and I wouldn't change my spot with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, do you think that's important for people who have been through a lot to get to that point where they realize that it makes them who they are and the great things that they can do from like that point moving forward? I do. But, you know, I work with a lot of people. So it's not a logical thing. You actually have to start helping people. So I get calls from, I I see two kinds of people if you want to, you know, there's probably lots of kinds of people. But in this regard, the people that go, okay, now I'm going to use it to help other people. And they, they could even start small, like going to um, an orphanage and visiting the kids or helping kids with cancer, whatever they do, right? And then there's the other people that are constantly like, why did this happen to me? I can't get over this. This happened to me. It's like the self-centered view, mm. right? Until you step back from yourself and you see the bigger picture that you're now prepared with tools that will... You're the, my, my rabbi once said to me, do you think you, it's better that you live the life you lived or you think it's better to live the life of the ordinary person? And I was like, I think the life of the ordinary person <laughs> would have been preferred. And he said, Lori, you've got access to a range of people that these people could never access to help. What you've been through and what it's given you is gold. You have the ability to save lives now. So, But some people that are in the victim mode, why me, why me, why me, will never be able to break out to because I was chosen. Ah. Right. Yeah. I was chosen to heal. Wow. Mm-hmm. And do you think some vic- people in that victim mode, they won't ever be able to? Like, uh, I mean, I guess it depends on where it is. I mean, I have people that I work with that are just always, why me, why me, why me? And it's just like, I, after a while, I get tired of talking to them. I'm just like, it's bringing me down. Too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go home and stare at yourself for a while. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, there's no there's no healing. I don't think in constantly. There's a period of time where I where I was numb. Then I was angry. During the angry, I'm staring at myself, going, mm. "Why me? Why me?" So yes, I went through a period of time, and I think people go through a period of time. But at some point, you have to turn the corner yeah. to help someone else, and that's what I'm saying. It doesn't have to be a mindset because I think your actions are the first thing, and then your mind follows, right? Ah. So let's say you're in victim mode and you want to get out of victim mode. Go help someone. And the, you'll see when you're walking away from helping them, even that very day, you'll be like, oh, my God, I feel so great. 
why do I feel so great? The more you do it, the more you, so your actions will lead you into better feeling. And once you get to better feeling, you'll be in a better living. But it starts with making a decision to help someone. And doing the action. I love that because even if you feel down and sad about yourself, mm. you actually can go get in the car and drive somewhere and yeah. do something, even yeah. if it's like feeding homeless dogs or something, you know. Something, like anything. You can yeah. do those things and it might seem little and yeah. a small gesture, mm-hmm. but yeah. I see. And so it's that doing yeah. that, oh, wow. Yeah. That's a really practical, yeah. awesome tip. Yeah. Because, you know, people spend years in therapy trying to think their way to have feelings. It's not, you know, it's, I, I think doing it is going to be quicker because you're going to get the, the, um, what is it called? The feeling of, wow, this is amazing. And you get it immediately and you don't have to pay for it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And, you're, and you're doing something for someone, yeah. you know, you're helping yeah. someone. So yeah. mm-hmm. that's unreal. And that, I mean, you really... I see you as someone who, th- who is thriving. Mm-hmm. You've gone from being a survivor and I think that um, victim mindset of feeling poor me, poor me is kind of you're surviving after a horrible thing and you're not stepping into thriving. Before you started Teen Project, you had a really good job. I mean, you got paid for like high six figures. Yeah. What, how were you able to uh, reconcile like being on the street and in your book, you talk about you were selling yourself for less and less money. Yeah. And how do you? Where, there must have been a transition point where you you believed you were de- you deserving of six figures and and stepping into that. Yeah, th- it's thriving. very deceptive being a prostitute, right? If you know uh, people that are prostitutes or call girls or dancers, they make mm-hmm. a lot of money, right? So, but they never use it for anything good. They rarely own houses or. Um, invested in real estate or do anything good what they spend it on is makeup more clothes and going places you know things that drift away I don't know why it is that bad money never goes towards good things it always goes toward more temporary bad things right right um so as a prostitute you're so or even as a drug addict so um it's so deceptive even your own thinking because on the streets I'm thinking okay if I give a all right, I'm not going to get graphic here, right? <laughs> if I give a group discount, 20 bucks a head, I make $100 in less than an hour. $100 an hour is more than my mom or dad makes, right? right. So you're constantly thinking that you're, you're working the system, that you're making a lot of money, even when you're making a little bit of money, right? Yeah. 20 minutes for a, a segment of what, you know, a portion of sex, if you know what I mean, <laughs> not the full bore, yeah, right. uh, 20 minutes for $20 seems like I'm earning a dollar an hour. I'm still earning more than my mom or dad. Right. So I was always in the function of an entrepreneur. <laughs> oh, so that mindset was always yeah. there for you. Yeah, and nice. I didn't have a pimp, so I didn't have an agent. I was self-agenting. You know what I mean? So yeah. I thought, God, you're really making it here. It's, it's, it's very deceptive how wow. the mind works. Yeah. That's, I see. So you really yeah. did feel like you were in a place of abundance. Yeah you know, working it. And it's funny, I worked, I worked for an insurance company for a little while before actually bolting off into computers full bore. Um, but when I worked for the insurance company, I took on attorneys. I don't know if you remember reading this in my book. I am mostly males because I was able to negotiate well with them. And I didn't realize this till writing my book. I would go into an attorney's office, realize they're busy and go, look, I'm not gonna tell you the company's been around since 1940 and give you that whole spiel because I know you don't care. You just want insurance. And I'm gonna start with the price. If we can get through the price, I'll tell you what you're getting. Cause I don't wanna spend my time sitting here telling you all the benefits for 30 minutes and get to the price and say, forget it. So let's start with the hard parts and we'd get through the price. Attorney would say, it sounds reasonable. And then I'd go through to the end. But then I realized these are street skills. We always started with the price when I was prostituting. Right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it's very strange how these things morphed into each other. Yeah. But yeah. But then I got into computers and it's funny, the man that actually, there was the man that picked me up on the road the night that I was yeah, tragically yeah. abducted. But um, angel. then there was another man that you read about in the book that was a trick. Um, he was a Vietnam vet in a wheelchair. So he couldn't engage in sex, but... Um, he was trying to save me for years and his name was Tom. And, uh, so Tom was in a wheelchair and obsessed with computers from the first time I met him. He taught me how to take apart a computer, put it back together. So Tom was actually the guy that started me on that, that trick, uh, bought me my first computer. I dissected it. I put it together and then I started computer school. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. 
And so, and were you living with him? Was it, is it important when you're getting off the streets to find someone that can Yeah, be so like I went to the hospital and then I went to Tom's for three weeks. Um, and he was never like inappropriate with me after that. I mean, before we, he couldn't do the deed, but you know, yeah, but yeah. after I got sober, he was very appropriate and I stayed there for three weeks and then I got into rehab and he helped me to get in and he helped me with the schooling. Why, how yeah. was he able to make that transition from knowing you on the streets, but then wanting to help you? And then when he saw there was a window to help you to be able to step back and be a gentleman. I think um, a gentleman's pushing it a little. He's uh, a grouchy <laughs> old bear. Um, but I think what happened was he grew up in a very abusive home, left home when he was 14, ran the streets with a bunch of little hoodlums, joined the Marines for three hots and a cot, and ended up getting shot with shrapnel when he was leading his battalion. So he had reached the top of where uh, he wanted to go when he was in the Marines, and then he got shot down. And... I think being in the wheelchair brought up all those feelings of his childhood and the abuse. And when he met me, when I showed up through the call service one night, he realized, like, uh, kind of like being a drug addict, how you attract other drug addicts all the time. Yeah. Or if you're in a bad relationship, you attract to that bad guy with a different face over and over again. He realized yeah. I was one of his people. And I think he thought through saving me, much like I, we just talked about when you go into the action of doing something, the feelings follow. Yeah. Through trying to help me, he made him feel better. And in the end, through helping me, it, he self, saved himself because he saved himself from all the pain of his childhood because he could see that it was now abuse to someone else. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And yeah. is, Tom, is Tom around today? Yeah, mm -hmm. he is. Are yeah. you still, do you still catch yeah. up? When he's not too grouchy, yeah. <laughs> He's like, um, what's his name? Is it Clint Eastwood that played in that car movie? The uh, the one with the guy. You know what I'm talking about? He's such a grouch and the kid next door tries to be friends with him. Yeah. I know you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's very grouchy. He's a, he's, um, what's the guy that Angeline Jolie was married to? Oh, uh, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah. He's like a mixture of Billy Bob Thornton at the grouch grouchiest level and uh, Clint Eastwood. He's just grouch, grouch, grouch. If we're high Tom the grouch, do you think he'll listen to this? <laughs> well, if he does, he'll just be more angry. You know, it's funny because when I founded the charity in 2007 now, uh, I realized kids were leaving foster care to homelessness and it drove me nuts. Yeah. And I literally went on LegalZoom and just said, I don't know what I'm doing, but like throwing spaghetti at the fridge. You throw spaghetti at the fridge, see if yeah, it's done. Yeah, to make sure yeah. it's done. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just see if it sticks. And if it sticks, great. If it doesn't, I'll do something else. But I opened this little charity and it went crazy. And within 10 months, I had raised $180,000. I didn't know what to do with it. So I bought this little house and it was three bedrooms and people came around me that had been hearing me talk about these foster kids and were so inspired that they knocked it down and built it up as a six bedroom house brand new. Each kid has their own bedroom. It's amazing. So when we founded that house, I put a plaque on the door and it said the Fauntleroy house, which was his last name and some Shakespearean quote about light after the rain. And it's always been on the house. So a couple of years after owning that first house, he wanted to hang out. And I said, why don't you come by the charity house? And he's like, yeah, I don't do kids, Lori. I don't want to go by your damn charity. <laughs> I'm like, you know what, Tom? Uh, we'll go to Starbucks right after. Just five minutes at the charity house and then Starbucks. And he's like, okay, okay. I'll come by, but only five minutes. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, he gets to the door of the house and sees that sign. And he literally is like, what is my name doing on this house? <laughs> I'm like, holy crap. You saved my life. And he's like, I gave you an effing ride. Because he picked me up. I mean, I stayed at his house. I'm like, no, Tom, you saved my life. And I was crying and he looked like he was going to cry. So he just like sped off and met me at Starbucks. <laughs> so he he doesn't know. like to hear about it. Wow. <laughs> and is that just because he's, well, that's interesting. It's like he doesn't, he doesn't want to. He can't absorb love. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. He can put out some help, but he can't fully absorb love yet. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So at some level, he was actually probably touched and happy. He though. was <laughs> touched, but he would never let anyone know it, much like our kids. He's still one of those kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that was the first team project. Then, yeah. And that was in Orange County. Yeah. You've since grown, and now we're at your team project um, space in Sun Valley. Yeah. Uh, in the Valley, yes. Los Angeles. Yes. And this is amazing. It's amazing the work you do. So tell us a bit about that. Okay. So um, while I'm working at Northrop Grumman, all this is happening, I start the Little House in Orange County, which helps girls that are homeless that want to go to college or vocational schooling and get off the streets. Uh, focuses foster care, 
girls 21, I'm 18 to 26 years old, sorry. And then I started the drop-in center in Venice Beach. As you know, I was getting a lot of calls from Venice Beach. I walked into a charity that was feeding kids pizza twice a week and giving them clothes and sending them back to the street. Being one of those kids, I thought, this is horrible. I'm sure they're, you know, I'm not saying the agency isn't doing a good job, but you can't tell me you love these kids like your own if you're going to put a sweater on them and send them out with pizza back to the street. Because we would never do that to our own kids. So it seemed like a big lie to me. So I started in Venice Beach. I opened a drop-in center there. The guys on my tech team at Northrop in their off hours helped me to create a texting program where a kid anywhere in the United States could text their zip code and get a return text with a shelter close to wherever they're at. We started an online shelter database. I started a project um, while working at Northrop. I was um, hired by two men, one being an actor who's very famous and the other one being a billionaire, and both were sober, and they asked me to create a place called Freehab for Homeless People. Long story short, the night we did the ribbon cutting, the billionaire relapsed, right? I think it was before the ribbon cut, before the event that night. We had a huge event. Um, And then the other guy moved out of the country and never donated. So the billionaire's family gave me a couple months rent, and that was it. And it's funny because when we originally started the project, the billionaire said, find an old rehab or a you know, convalescent home that's already set up. I don't want to put a lot into capital. I just want to open like a hundred bed rehab for homeless people. So just find a building like that. And the other guy was like, find me a warehouse. I want to put barracks in it. And that was the the actor who didn't have much business sense. And a warehouse wouldn't have supported, we would have needed infrastructure, zoning, all kinds of stuff, but he wouldn't listen to me. So I went out and looked at every warehouse and every treatment center until I found a treatment center connected to a warehouse owned by the same lady, both vacant. Wow. And that is where we sit now. So, wow. yeah. So I signed the lease for $25,000 a month for both buildings. Mm-hmm. And we moved right into the freehab place. But we only had a couple months oh of God. money. So it was, and I'm still working at Northrop. And my name's on the lease. So I was like, holy <gasps> crap. That's a lot and of money to yeah. pay for rent. And so I didn't know what I was going to do. But this happens to me a lot where I don't know what I'm going to do. And God likes to show off. So some guy called me at work one night. And said, Lori, I just read your book and I want to help you. And he was a stranger to me. And I said, how do you want to help? And he's like, I really don't know. And I said, well, I think people know what they have to give. Think about who you are, what you have, and tell me how you think you're supposed to give. And he said, I'm going to wire you half a million dollars because I believe you'll do something good with it. And he wired it. Couldn't believe it. The stranger. And then I met him a couple of days later at the facility, and he was so enthralled. He said, I'll give you another half a million to quit your job. So that's how I quit my job. I came to work here. But let me tell you, that warehouse sat empty for years. The oh. warehouse that the movie star told me to get and wouldn't back off of. And yeah. I was so frustrated because it's like, this is a lot of money that we could be helping homeless kids with. And I would fight with God about it. Because the, the one thing I do get upset about, my staff can tell you, is when we're running out of money. Because yeah. I feel wholly responsible to pay all the staff salaries, all of the food here, take care of all the kids. And when we're running out of money, I have like a little outing with uh, my higher power. So we got in 2016, we got what's called a request for a proposal. And it was for like two million. Uh, no, it was one point. I'm sorry, I'm backing up. It was one million for capital to convert a building into more of a hospital setting, and it was two point three million a year. And the requirement to get the grant from the Department of Mental Health was that you have to have an empty building with at least a twenty year lease on it. And I'm like, oh my God, does someone else have an empty building with a twenty year lease on it besides me? Who would have that? So we applied and we won it. So that's about 40-something million dollars over the next 20 years, and that's the construction you see going on next door. So it's a crisis center for um, girls that are having a mental health breakdown, whether it be overdose, suicide risk, or just plain old mental health breakdown. Oh, my Mm -hmm. gosh. Somewhere where they can just go get straight off the street and start getting help. Mm -hmm. And then we have the 74-bed facility here. And in case you didn't realize it, I'm just going to say it. What we have here which is rehab, provides free rehab and free vocational schooling and life support until you can get on your feet, are the very same things that they gave me when I walked in off the street, the free rehab and that free vocational grant. 
Wow. So it worked for you. So right. that's what you're that's yeah. what you've set up. Yeah. I mean, how is are there a lot of these kinds of organizations? There are a lot of people doing this where they're providing the vocational support, providing the free hab. No. And these are probably the sort of things that are needed. Yeah. So it's really weird and you're probably aware of this because of, you know, just the people you talk to. Um, there are a lot of good places. I'll tell you, there's just a lot of good places trying to help kids. But the priority right now for um, coming from HUD is that we're going to do low barrier housing first mm -hmm. priority. So you've mm -hmm. heard those terms, right? Yeah, and HUD is, what? let's um, clarify HUD again. Uh, housing, oh. urban development or yeah. something, and right? It's so they, run, yeah, it's they the run the stats of the homeless people and decide what we need. Yeah. Unfortunately, those stats came from mentally ill, persistently homeless people like um, that you see like living on the streets of Venice for 20 years, right? Yeah. The older people, that's what they need. They need to just get in a house, get a shower, get a TV and start doing life and get on their meds and they'll be, they figure they'll be okay. But this priority should not apply to kids because Hi. what's happening is a lot of the agencies in order to get the money go with the housing first priority and they're shutting down everywhere and closing off the money because I talked to them. It Because you we did it here for about two years. We tried it the first year we went gung-ho and the second year we were like, we got to get out of this because it was like Lord of the Flies. You got kids coming in with weed cards, going out and drinking every day, coming in high and they say, well, you can't kick them out of their housing. It's low barrier. Okay, now the kids that want to get sober are impacted by the kids that are bringing drugs in and we just had to say, we don't want the money anymore. Wow, yeah. right. Because you mm -hmm. can't, if you're an addict, you need to be completely removed yeah. from any influence mm -hmm. of it. I see. That's, mm -hmm. wow. So free have is probably the first thing or rehab is the most important thing, right. not necessarily low barrier housing, but getting yeah. people. I, I mean, is, is drug addiction a big problem with people in the streets? Yeah, especially since they legalized marijuana cards. Because I got to tell you, every kid's got a marijuana card. <laughs> Oh. It's really problematic. And marijuana these days is not like the marijuana that you grow in your backyard in the 70s. You know what I mean? It's mm. chemically enhanced. And uh, yeah, it's a big problem. Unless you have a clear mind, how are you going to process um, PTSD and therapy? Because you're numb, right? Right. And that was a big thing for you. Yeah. You said you mm -hmm. were numb for so many years before yeah. you were able to be angry and then move forward. Yeah. And that's a natural numb, though. But if you're given meds to make you numb, that keep on working, you'll never get to the feeling that you need to get to, which wow. is the anger. So yeah, it's a big problem. Look, put it this way. I wouldn't invest my money in a kid doing drugs to go to college and I wouldn't use your money either. Mm -hmm. So I tell my donors that don't agree with this. I, I don't think it's a good investment to send a kid to school or college that's on drugs. Mm -hmm. If you think it's a good investment, give to another charity. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And fair enough because yeah. there's, there's all sorts of different charities out there yeah. doing different work. Mm -hmm. and so, yeah. And you have an amazing thing coming up or yes. happening yes. with Teen Project. Yes. Uh, would you like to tell us about it? Because it's sure. very exciting. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you've heard of Boys Town. Um, Boys Town was founded in like 1917 by a Father Flanagan in, I don't know where he lived at the time, but this uh, priest told the other priests that he wanted to take in the five worst kids that were living in their neighborhood and stealing and ruining things and just bad, bad kids. And he wanted to rent an apartment. It's a brilliant movie with Spencer Tracy if you want to go home and watch it. It's just great. Oh, that's why I've heard of yes. Boys Town because it's a movie. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, and they're like, we'll look at this as a pilot project because these are the worst kids. But they allowed him to do it. He literally went to the... What is it called? The pawn shop. I should know that name from my past. Um, he went to the pawn shop and sold everything he had so he could rent an apartment that would allow him to take care of these kids. And they did brilliant. Not only did they do brilliant, if you go back to uh, Omaha, Nebraska now, there is a Boys Town food store, a Boys Town public library, a Boys Town post office. And it is amazing. This man saved so many lives. Well, I've always been obsessed with Boys Town because I grew up in group homes. And group homes, if you ever get the privilege to go see one, I'm there all the time because I have kids I mentor. Um, but the staff are barely older than the kids, and they have no no um, schooling most of the time. They're just, if you turn 18 and you got your GED, you could be a counselor. So you've got these constant 
counselors coming in and out and it's not the best interface with the kids, right? Yeah. So you yell at a counselor, they yell back at you. <laughs> so Boys Town always had a family in the house. They have a mom and a dad and sometimes the mom and dad even have kids and the family lives there with you. So you have a family setting, you have dinner with your family every night. There are counselors coming in and out, but they're not your family, right? right. So they actually recreated a family environment. So I've been obsessed with it forever. Well, last year... I saw that Boys Town sold all homes in New York, California, and Texas, and I went crazy. There's a huge site out by us called Flanagan Road, and at the top of it, there's like $5 million homes with a 360-degree view. I mean, these kids just live like on the top of the world, literally. Wow. No pun intended, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I saw everything went for sale, and I was devastated on two levels. What happened to all these kids that were living in these yeah. homes? And Father Flanagan's probably tossing in his grave. And what happened to that site? Well, I posted it all over the place, went and saw investors. I'm like, we need to save the site for the foster kids. I didn't have the money. It's probably six to eight million. And um, it went to a developer. So I gave up on it. And a couple months after that, I was asked to come in and speak to the Juvenile Justice Commission close to where that is. And they told me they don't have one home for a sex traffic kid in Orange County. Now, being a prostitute myself, I was like triggered. Like, what do you mean? Not even one bed? Wow. And they're like, no, not one bed. And currently we're holding all the juveniles in juvenile hall. And I'm like, okay, so these poor kids have been taken up by pimps, forced to have sex with them, with these strange people on drugs, forced on drugs, and now you've got them in juvenile hall? Like criminals. Yeah. So I was, you know, triggered again. I leave there. Not a month later, a donor of ours says, I want to donate a million dollars for you to get a permanent place. And I was like awestruck, like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? I didn't even know what I was going to do with the million until the developer from the Boys Town place called me back and said, I want to give the homes back to a charity. I'm putting it out for bid to all of the charities in Orange County that I like, and I hope you'll bid, but you're the smallest guy in the block, so you don't have much of a chance, but I want you to try anyway because I like you guys. Well, he met us, he loved us, and uh, we now own the place that I was obsessed with as a kid and I can't sleep anymore. I, and you, I'm not just saying that, like, uh, I just can't sleep. I wake up at one o'clock going, can I get up two o'clock? Why can't I get up? I'm like a little kid, <laughs> three o'clock. Oh my God. You got three more hours, five o'clock. I wake up. I'm like, Oh my God, you're almost there. Just try and get back to sleep because I can't wait to wake up to, uh, what this, this dream is now my reality. I get to follow father Flanagan's legacy. And this will be a home for sex traffic mm -hmm. kids. Is it women predominantly? Are there also boys? No, there's the boys system? there. And yeah. we take transgender youth that yeah. are going towards being female. That was a board decision. It's like, okay, we, we already have a lot of gay girls. Um, and I love that population as well because that's the kids I grew up with, even though um, I dipped into it for a minute or two. Yeah. <laughs> it was not my, I stayed on my side of the fence, but um, I really am, you know, comfortable around that but at some point we were like okay which transgender youth do we take and we made a board decision that we will take boys that are interested in going towards the girl population right so that yeah. everyone still has the same mentality as being a girl oh i see right yeah because you're always you, it is about taking care of young women yeah so yeah, yeah. oh my yeah. gosh that's amazing mm -hmm. that's so brilliant yeah Wow. So this is, things are really ramping up for Team Project. Yeah. You've just got yeah. some, how many lives have you helped already? Oh my God. I, I don't think you can count at this point because of the, the texting program. Mm -hmm. So all the kids all over the nation that got to a safe place because of our program and the shelter database, which we never tracked. And then you've got the Venice Drop-In Center, which we were referring those kids to all of the shelters. We, one of my programmers who was like a, a Zuckerberg type kid, very smart, scraped all the shelters from all the databases around the United States. So we had them all in one big list and we could text to their, the kid where they're at. Um, so there's no way to track it anymore, but you'd have to say thousands at minimum. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. How does it feel? What would, what would you say to Laurie, little Laurie, who was defiant mm. against her dad and don't know what I'd say to little Lori. You know what I mean? I just, um, little Lori's still here, right? I'm still attracted to the same. The things that I loved as a kid uh, were nature because I would hide out in the woods and I love the smell of nature and the feel of the leaves in autumn and snow and things like that. So I'm still very into the same things that I was then. Um, I think I'm more connected with the little Lori now because 
when I, when I started using drugs and then I went into that rehab, I remember clearly, and I wrote about it in my book, the first time that I laughed so hard that I started crying because it was at that moment that I realized I hadn't laughed in so many years, really laughed, like from the gut. Wow. And so I lost the child in that path with drugs, but I got back to it. So um, I think I am, if you ever got to know the real Lori at the house, I am more kid-like than I am adult-like. I just pretend while I'm here. <laughs> pretend that you're all grown up doing grown up yeah <laughs> yeah wow that's amazing it's just such unbelievable work you do and I've I mean I've known you for a few years and mm-hmm. watched what you do and I'm always saying oh I know a really good charity because yeah. people are always looking for a great organization to support right um I'm, you know, I I want to give you because we are sponsored by uh, WonderSafe, which is an mm. app that you use when you travel. But they also have a device, which is yeah. a personal safety device. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to give you guys uh, the team project ten of those devices. Oh, that would be awesome. They're, um, they sync up with the app. Yeah. But the device is really good on its own because it's good. got a digital like alarm that yeah. goes off and deters, you know you know, deters people if you find yourself in a bad situation. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to test it. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely want to give you – I want to give you ten of those and because um, that would be pretty awesome because I love what you do. And then I want to say one more thing before we yeah. close out. A mm-hmm. uh, miracle that happened in the past two years is drug medical. I don't know if you're aware, but no. it started in Sacramento, then it went to L.A., and now it's just starting in Orange County as of July. Medical is now paying for rehab. And because of that, now freehab – is it's still free to the people, but everyone gets covered by Medi-Cal. And that's through Los Angeles Public Health and Los Angeles Substance Abuse Prevention and Control. They have been like angels to the rescue. Oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. Because mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense, doesn't it, for them mm-hmm. to fund this because you are getting results. Right. And is there something about being a, a private charity versus a government-connected charity where they're a little bit – are there arms um, – you know, tired at all? Do you have a little more freedom because you are a private well, charity? Well, uh, okay, so we still, now that we have the Medi-Cal, we're, we're county funded, right? Or yeah. even, you know, we're licensed by the state. So we're a, a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. There are some houses in like the Orange County sites, fully publicly funded right now. And the LA sites are fully county or state funded right now. So we're a mixed bag. Right. But um, I love that we're a mixed bag because we'll never throw a kid out. Like I get calls like, oh, we got a girl that's pro- perfect for you. And we're calling from X rehab. Really? Why is she not at X rehab? Um, because her insurance ran out. And I'm just like, oh, just kick me. Like seriously, this you're going to kick this girl out because her insurance ran out and it happens everywhere. And then that this will never happen here. That goes that goes to that whole love. Like these kids, I think one thing that you give, aside from all the amazing stuff that you mm-hmm. do, is you give love. Like I've seen right. you with the kids and mm-hmm. I see their faces and they're so, mm-hmm. you know, they feel loved. And yeah. that, if you're if you have a kid in a rehab and then you're like, Oh, your insurance ran out off you I mean, that's just Oh my again, god, it's horrible. It's like I'm just so I'm so yeah. unlovable. <laughs> yeah. Far out. Yeah. How important would you say love is? Oh, it's number one. Yeah. I mean, it's just like even, you know, when I walk around just in life and you smile at someone and say hello, you can see that it's impacted them. You know what? You said to me once, because you've been homeless, I remember you said the worst thing about being homeless was people not even looking at you. Yes. Mm -hmm. They walk right by you like you don't exist. What would you say to someone who isn't homeless, who is maybe uncomfortable with homeless people? We have a big homeless problem in Los Angeles. What would you say to them? They'd be surprised at the story. Yeah. Yeah. What ended them there? I mean, there are some stories that are expected and then there are other stories where you're just like, I mean, I just watched a documentary on it and it was made by one of the guys at Public Health on a guy that went to Juilliard and he was brilliant. Right. Or you've seen the one with Robert Downey Jr. Kind of mm. similar. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, something like that. I mean, you just don't know the story. Don't judge. Right. Just say hello and smile. And for someone who feels like they're not able, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to help. Would you say just say hi, just smile. Just say hi and smile. Yeah. You don't have to give. Mm. Yeah. You don't have to do anything yeah. that you can't do. See, I'm not one to walk by and give a person money because of being a drug addict. I don't want them to use my money for drugs. And mm. some people would disagree with that. You know, let them do what they want. But I'll go in and get them a sandwich. I'll bring out a donut and a coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give them a book. One of my books signed. 
you know, so um, I'll give them a card and tell them where they can go. So people can do more than they think yeah. they can. Yeah. And it's probably the little things. Yeah, it is. Even with the kids here when they arrive, it's like what's most important when they arrive? Hot Cheetos, for sure. <laughs> All of our talking and love isn't going to impact them then, but you hand them a bag of Hot Cheetos and you've just made their month. Oh, yeah. 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 Why are Hot Cheetos so good? I mean, they're I this horrible, like, purpley orange yeah. color. I don't know. But they Dyes and all kinds of crazy stuff. But they love them. so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. I don't mind. We're big on snacks. If you don't have a lot to donate and you want to help us, send us snacks. Oh, yeah? Because that's the first thing a kid gets. A chocolate bar, Hot Cheetos, a Snickers bar. Yeah. Yeah. It's the first piece of love. Mm-hmm. So food is love, yeah. just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Okay, so we can send snacks to Teen yeah. Project uh-huh. and go online to The Teen Project. So it's theteenproject.com. Yeah. It's, I always go teen like teenager because when people hear it, they think we're saying team, like a team of people. Oh, so yeah. it's the teen like teenagerproject.com. And if oh, you go yeah. to donate, there's ways to donate out there. Oh, okay. Not just yeah. money. Like there's, you can see what, how much you, the money that you give is helping because yes. it's broken down and put mm-hmm. into perspective, but then also it's. And great. you can hit me up. If you hit contact, it comes directly to me. Oh, awesome. Yeah. The kids on the, on the street, when they call the hotline, I'm the first stop on the block. I still like to answer the phone. If I can't get it, the other girls will get it, but that's got to be yeah. a really important thing. Yeah. I love it. I was supposed to pick a girl up from juvie today on the way up, which would have been exciting. She's here now. Her counselor drove her cause it took too long, but yeah. going by juvenile hall to pick up a kid would have been like made my day. Again, it's the doing. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. say it's yeah. the doing that makes, make your life better. And then right. and you make other people's lives better. Yeah. Oh, that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. So her day, her life begins today. Yeah. All right, well, I'll let you go. I think I'll let you go and and meet up with her. You can meet her too. I will come and meet her. That sounds really exciting. I'm really excited. All right, we're going to go and meet a new girl. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A new girl in the the family, in the Teen Project family. If you would like to give to Teen Project, the Teen Project, like Teenager Project, theteenproject.com, you can go and check out the Teen Project story and all the links um, that you – need to donate for any more information you can go to beautifulhollywood.com because that's what this show's website all all very big thanks to laurie burns for sharing her story today i'm melanie camp this is beautiful hollywood thank you beautiful thank you for having me on beautiful hollywood beautiful